0: in his life, Melchior's constant volunteer escapades had caught up to him. He describes how my academic high school exams and graduation were scheduled for the spring of 1921. The war was two years behind us and the school administration's requirements remained as they did during times of peace. I, however, had attended school only sporadically in the last three to four years. Certainly many of my classmates missed class from time to time, but no one left school for every possible volunteer opportunity, as did I, who least of all could afford it. I had no basic school-taught knowledge nor interest, and so what was expected did indeed transpire. I totally flunked out of the written exams and was barred from even attempting the orals. I would have preferred to pass up on retaking the exams, but after long, unpleasant confrontations with my father and to assuage my mother, I finally agreed to try a second time. The next opportunity would take place in six months in the fall of that year. In the preceding summer months, I promised to buckle down and work. a coincidence which landed Hans in his career of import-exports. His father had a casual relationship with a Hamburg senator, who had previously worked part-time in a well-known import-export firm, and who offered Melchior an apprenticeship working there as long as he made a good impression. It was only after he landed the job that he realized Karlowitz & Company was a highly reputable firm, and that internships were almost impossible to get. For some background on the firm, we must turn to an article on the German-speaking community in Hong Kong, by Carl T. Smith. The first German firm to be permanently established in China was Carlowitz and Company. It was founded by Richard von Carlowitz, who opened an office in the Canton Fat- Foreign Factory compound in 1944. Since 1840, he had been coming to China on periodic business trips. He went into partnership with Bernard Hopcroft in 1846. A branch office was opened on Number 2 Angular Street in Hong Kong in 1866. At the same time, Adolfus Erbeck was admitted a partner. In March eighteen sixty eight, the Hong Kong office was moved to fifteen Paella Central opposite the wharf of Douglas Luprock and Company. In eighteen eighty, Karlowitz and Company advertised themselves as the agents of Aniline Dye Company of Berlin. The company represented German financiers in arranging a five million mark loan to his Excellency, Lee Han Chang, in eighteen eighty seven. It also represented the Krupp firm in nineteen twelve for a loan of six million marks. The company's beginning in Canton made sense initially, since trade with China was restricted to the port city of Canton. However, as China began to crack under imperialist pressure in the Opium Wars, new opportunities for trade arose, and the company expanded. I also got extensive information about this from a book titled Foreign Communities in Hong Kong, which documented how the Germans had gained influence in China. Since the British Hong Kong government was rather receptive towards Germans, the latter had no difficulty in integrating into the British community. German merchants chose not to challenge the position of their British partners, and because of their success in working with the British authorities, they made no effort at cultivating political ties with their governments back at home. This meant that the German communities who were living in Hong Kong at the time had almost no affiliation with the German government. This is important to note when we get to the World War II part of this story. The major German companies in Hong Kong at the time were Melchers & Company, Seisman & Company, and Karlowitz & Company. All of these companies, because of their aforementioned agreements with the British, were easily able to detach with their connections from the German government during the war. However, they did assist Germany in the trade of unskilled Chinese laborers to Cuba for profit. Essentially, these companies were immoral long before Hans got to the scene. The article came to the conclusion that the history of Carlowitz and company also provided a few details about the company's involvement in his trade. Some foreign records in the office show that a number of ships chartered under German firms were responsible for shipping forced Chinese laborers to Cuba. We can surmise that, although the Germans in Hong Kong may not have been the chief players in the kidnapping and selling of Chinese workers to South America, they were at least indirectly involved in the business. A number of other German companies, including the Carlo Watson Company, also became agents of end suppliers of German military arms and ammunition in the following decades. This was what Hans ended up doing when he worked for the company. After Germany established its first naval base, German companies in Hong Kong, such as and Company, lost no time in extending their business to northern China. As in the past, German merchants in Hong Kong continued to sell from various countries, but they derived a growing portion of their income from the re-export of German industrial products. More specifically, the founder of Karlowitz & Company, Richard von Karlowitz, had a long tradition of involvement in business. Richard Karlowitz had learned to be a trader long before moving to Leipzig, where he worked for the office of Karl & Gustav Harcourt, Dissatisfied with his unpromising career in Leipzig, he eventually, in 1840, accepted employment at Napier & Company in New York, where he handled the company's trade with South America, but succeeded only in leaving massive unsettled debts behind. He was not a very successful businessman. And although his life in the New World was more comfortable than in Leipzig, Karlowitz never became the wealthy businessman he wanted to be, and by 1842, he was again on the verge of bankruptcy. He was therefore incredibly happy to sail east when, in 1843, the traditional manufacturing and trading house of Carlin Gustav Harcourt commissioned him to explore the Chinese market. I also found information about the official Carlowitz and Company headquarters, which Melchior would eventually spend time in when he worked in Shanghai. The headquarters, made of brick and wood, were erected in 1898, and the building stood as a testament to the company's importance. It was located right next to Nanjing Road, which is often regarded as Shanghai's 5th Avenue. The side building has now been renovated into a luxurious modern complex with shops and offices, while the allegedly irredeemable warehouse has been left to its original state. It was pretty interesting to look at the current photos of the company headquarters, although there are very few black and white photos of the original headquarters, at least at the time when Melchior worked within them. Hans remarked that the Hamburg import-export headquarters were only constructed in the 70s of that century, and after many branches had already opened up in China. Over the years, the company had succeeded in garnering valuable connections and representing significant companies such as Krupp, Zeiss, Bofors, and many others. By the end of World War I, though, they had closed their doors, the English having been forced all Germans to leave and repatriate. Yet, surprisingly fast, the business was rebuilt— When I joined the company in 1921, about a dozen branches in the most important Chinese trade zones had opened up again. Some 30 employees in Hamburg busied themselves with these. Melchior had ambitions to get out of Germany and was excited about the prospect of working in China. He ended up getting assigned to the goods exports department following his two-year apprenticeship and relocated to the province of Shangtong in Sinanfu, which is in northern China. Before his departure, and I find this a funny story, his father gave him a book titled Helmut Haringa as a parting gift, which he claimed was a novel with trendy warnings against alcoholism and decadence. According to Melchior's brief summary, it featured the main character, a blonde, blue-eyed, somewhat innocent-appearing boy, who fell in love with an alcoholic, contracted syphilis, and ended up committing suicide. Apparently, Melchior was pretty unfazed by this warning, and after receiving the present, he recalled that he enjoyed many a pleasant round of drinks. I mostly find this funny because, following receiving this gift, he lived a life of decadence and had a decent amount of partying and alcohol. Here marked a chapter where Melchior disengaged from ongoing political disputes. He writes that, "'I should mention here that my active interest in politics and soldier games ended abruptly. As soon as I embarked upon my career, I cut myself off from those who clung on to the ideas of long-disbanded groups, meeting regularly, hiding secret weapons, and plotting stupid nonsense.' Slowly, my political views turned more liberal. I had no sympathy whatsoever toward the group of small fanatics who terrorized Hamburg, throwing hand grenades at the communist press and into the homes of communists who lived in Eppendorf, defacing the memorial to Hind by smearing it with red paint and engaging in destructive pranks throughout the city. These folks were eventually rounded up, caught, and because they broke laws outlying explosives, were condemned to long prison sentences." I knew one of these perpetrators very well. I had no sympathy for him and his friends and wanted nothing more to do with the German National Party. When I voted for the first time, I voted for the German People's Party, which, while still politically to the right, was, for the first time since the war, engaged in international politics and represented by the statesman Streisman. For more context, the ethno-nationalist group of radicals he mentioned were a German organization with the motto blood and soil and a platform of, well, Racialism, Populism, Agrarianism, and Romantic Nationalism. A preamble to the Nazi party, they essentially believed that Jews were an alien race and not part of the German Volk. in addition to believing that all human beings are centered around their inherited characteristics. That's where the blood part of their motto comes from. So at this point, Hans had left the German Nationalist Party, and more specifically the radical alt-right. He had left this party and joined the German People's Party. The German People's Party was less anti-Semitic, but still appealed to business middle-class Protestants such as himself. It represented owners of small and middle-sized businesses, but lacked the rural base of nationalism. It was willing to support and participate in the Weimar government, but criticized the new government for some of its more liberal policies. So, during this time, Hans, in July 1926, set off for China, where he departed from Hamburg, but was forced to take a rather circuitous route due to ongoing international conflicts, something which I think is worth noting because it's an interesting story relative to the politics of the day. He reminisces that, "...I was forced to transfer trains in Berlin because of disputes raging between Germany and Poland in 1926." It was impossible for Germans to get visas to travel through Poland, and so I had to travel via the Schneidermuhl and Koenigsberg through the so-called corridor to Riga. The corridor, as you know, later provided Germany the superficial pretext for entering World War II. Schneidermuhl, now part of Poland, was then a part of Germany, on its border adjacent to Poland. Koenigsberg was in Russia on the opposite side of Poland, which would have required going over the narrow land bridge connected by the highly disputed territory of Danzig, known as the Polish Corridor. The invasion of Poland ended up starting World War II, as Melchior mentioned. Poland had regained independence in 1918 following World War I after the collapse of Russia's czarist regime, but suffered subsequent battles in 1919 through 1921 against the Czechs, Ukrainians, and Bolsheviks. In 1921, five years before Hans navigated the border between the two, France, Italy, Belgium, and Great Britain had signed the Locarno Treaties with Germany, agreeing to Poland's western borders. However, Germany refused to agree to Poland's eastern borders, which was a source of tension as it indicated the intention of German imperialists to eventually expand into Poland. So, at this point in history, Melchior was taking a Russian luxury coach to Moscow, and there, he, upon arrival, got to witness Moscow in 1926. His experience was described as such. Upon arrival in Moscow, Derutra, the German and Russian transportation agency with whom my ticket had been purchased, bought every passenger traveling through Siberia a name tag and instructed us to hang it around our necks. Then, a representative of the agency met us on the train platform and led us to a hotel near the Kremlin. We had a whole day free and thus had the opportunity to look around Moscow. Before leaving Germany, we were warned that Moscow would not give us such freedom, and that they would not let us get out of their sights. This was not the case. We went wherever we wished to go. No one took any notice of us, except a few curious souls who looked us up and down and saw us as well-dressed, strange foreigners. What we saw was not at all pleasant. At the time, in 1926, obvious to the eye was the gap between the wealthy West and conditions in Russia— We saw many people dressed in rags, beggars, dilapidated houses, very few cars, and in their stead, streetcars filled up to the gills in passengers, hanging out of them like grapes on a vine. We also went around the huge grounds of the Kremlin, but the day, all of it, was a disappointment. At the time of his visit to the Kremlin, the government was attempting to formulate a five-year industrialization plan, but it ended up being held up by factional infighting within the government. Economic disagreements among party leaders, or Stalin's inner circle, Stalin at the time was the party's general secretary, were pretty rampant. During 1927, there was a meeting with Kubachev and the rest of the party leaders, and Kubachev delivered a report to the party leaders, or the TSIK, which noted conditions similar to those which Melchior saw. He noted continuing unemployment, high industrial costs and prices, and shortages of materials and resources. However, Kubishev was one of the most optimistic of the bunch of his colleagues. Rob Crin led a parallel investigation which came to the conclusion that, according to the article, industry, state, and society in Stalin's Russia revealed serious organizational problems which hampered the council's administration of industry and the economy with a situation that was getting worse, not better. Rob Krin blamed weak central leadership and chaotic planning for tanking the economy and, more specific, specifically, blamed the venture. The venture was the supreme economic council which administered the industrial economy. Rob Krin blamed these officials for criminal negligence and fraud. So as the government of Russia was trying to figure this out and doing a lot of infighting over what to do and how to improve the Russian economic situation, the people of Russia were starving, as Melchior took notice of. Melker then had to stop in Tian where he described there that on the terrace sat a group of U.S. Marines dressed in khaki and wearing broad-brimmed hats. They were drinking German craft beer and rolling silver dollars around on the table. I could barely understand one word in their loud gabfest. I imagined it could get quite interesting here for me with my bit of high school English. And I only thought that was an interesting segment to pull out because it notes the international scene at the time and how cultures were blending, especially on the international transit routes of the kind that Melgar was taking. His voyage ended in its intended destination of Fu, where a noticeable German influence existed. Fu, which is now referred to as Jinan and is still in the capital province of Shangtung, now referred to as Shandong province, still exists in eastern China. I know it gets a little confusing with the names. There had existed a German sphere of influence in China, but in 1919, after the First World War, the Japanese had taken over that sphere of influence. During the World War II era of the Republic of China, Zhang Chang, nicknamed Dog Meat General, was the ruler of Xinan Fu province. The province had struggled with conflict with the Japanese, most notably one incident when a Chinese emissary and 16 other Chinese men were murdered and tortured by the Japanese and then invaded, killing 2,000 civilians. However, even after this conflict, the Germans continued to maintain a presence. Melchior remarked that Tsingtao was a German colony until the end of World War I. He also mentioned that the last German governor was a certain Mayor Welbeck, who sent off a telegram to the Kaiser as the war started, saying, persevere to the very end. This missive was widely published in the press, heralding our hero governor in a far-off time, with his brave, small colonial garrison resisting a mighty superior foe, who was prepared to die a hero's death for the glory of the Kaiser and the Empire. It turned out the defense of Tao turned out to not be very effective nor heroic, particularly not under the leadership of the governor, dubbed the cellar mayor. Because, during the siege by the Japanese artillery, he was so frightened that he hid out in the cellar. After the war, the Japanese returned the province to China. Nevertheless, earlier German influences remained visible. In those days, Tsingtao resembled a German seaside resort with attractive houses and gardens. Ranks of retired German colonial rep soldiers, railroad and postal personnel, stayed on, many of them marrying Chinese women. Melchior, however, found the German community in Tsingtao dull and disappointing. He did, however, once again witness a celebration of the Kaiser's birthday, with a typical nationalistic fashion. Although this time, his enthusiasm was less palpable. Perhaps this was a celebration of his personal growth during the time, a symbol that he was slowly edging away from nationalism. Or it was due to the fact that Germans were slowly growing disenchanted by the concept of a Kaiser and saw the need for a regime change, one which Hitler would soon provide. Either way, his description of the Kaiser's birthday was a lot more critical, even comical. He recalled that again, it was time to celebrate the Kaiser's birthday. Parades, shots fired and salutes and all kinds of public entertainment with plenty of beer amused the party crowd until finally all assembled in the German auditorium for the speech. The speaker was the well-known German brewery, a successful man, a corpulent, swell-headed, pompous, and well-known great patriot. He spoke very long, loudly, and forcefully about work, duty, love for the fatherland, and the blossoming German colonies. And finally, he came up with brilliant comparisons, citing the German imperial eagle, The head of our eagle, that is our beloved Kaiser and the right wing. That is our bold and fearless army and the left wing, that is our brave marines. He only got that far when he was interrupted by a voice in the audience. And the asshole, that is you. Boisterous laughter broke out, and that ended his speech right there. When Melchior arrived in 1926, the town had a population which he estimated at around 100 Germans. It is then when Melchior describes arriving in his Hong in Sienanfu for the first time. On the ground level were the offices— And on the floor above, employees were provided free room and board, only contributing now and then to food and drinks. The upstairs base was called the mess, and the whole house, completed with downstairs offices, the hall. The property often included warehouses, between which gardens and usually a tennis court were located. Our Hong was a rather large old house built on a corner with lots of entrances on two streets. Upstairs, on one wing of the house, Paul M. was settled in with his Russian, and Lissette and I shared another one. This seemed more than adequate. I had my own living room, bedroom, and bath. Together, the three of us shared a dining room and a large living room. A veranda wrapped around the whole house, giving us views of the garden behind it, where houses and servants' quarters were visible. According to the article, Hong Kong Hong Kongs with Long Histories and British Connections, Hongs were large business houses— which belonged to corporations in China until 1840 or so, when banking facilities were also provided by those large Hongs. The Chinese word Hong means a row or series, and is applied to warehouses built in rows. The name was especially referring to the native commercial houses connected with foreign trade. The name has now come to be used in reference to all business firms, however, hence the name Hong Merchants. While working for his company, Melchior was responsible for learning and transmitting codes. The company had a private coding system which they used to process orders, such as the product, quantity, price, turnaround time, marketing info, and more. Melchior became a kind of code specialist who would receive telegrams and fix mistakes in the coded letters. However, his job also involved networking, and so these descriptions are of equal interest. He described going on recreational bustard hunts in one account. Bustards, also known as the Asian Hobara, are, according to The Economist, attractive to hunters, both animal and human, while their lack of the hind toe, although an advantage for the curious species, renders them incapable of perching on trees to escape ground predators, and their small feet and weak bills render them physically defenseless. So, Melchior went on these buster hunts with fellow members of the German community as a networking opportunity, a business opportunity, but also a form of recreational fun, since it was something that a lot of people, and specifically people within the foreign communities, did in China. This, unfortunately, has led to the buster's placement on Chinese endangered species lists, although not of any fault of my great-grandfather's. It turns out that they are now hunted for use as an aphrodisiac. Melchior described how spirited conversations about the hunt prevailed at the regular table at the hotel. Everyone was an enthusiastic hunter. The most exciting tales were told about the bustard hunt. Keen German hunters near and far were invited to participate in this macho hunt. In my first year, I even joined the group, and it went something like this. In the wee hours of the morning, we hunters followed the Chinese into the hunting fields. Upon arrival, we all lined up, one hunter between two Chinese drivers standing about ten meters apart. A call went out to start the first column moving forward, as the Chinese drivers, a few steps ahead of us, used their long sticks to rustle the grasses. However, Melchior's job wasn't just hunting bustards and decoding. He eventually unveils the true nature of his job, one which is, unfortunately, much darker. China in the summer of 1926, the political situation was in chaos. Chiang Kai-shek had not yet started out on his march to the north. The country was not unified and there was no central government. The provinces were ruled by warlords who sucked the people dry. The most powerful warlord in the north was Chang So Lin, who ruled Manchuria and apparently later fell victim to a Japanese bombing. Another well-known warlord was Wu Paifu, and another was called the Christian General Fang zu Hung, who was known to convert his soldiers to Christianity by baptizing them en masse with a garden hose. The ruler of the province of Shandong was Chang Cheng Shan. He came from Manchuria and was said to have been a bandit in his younger years before serving under Chang Sao Lin. Chang was huge, a massive man, who came to power through wanton brutal force. His poor subjects were forced to pay taxes for the next ten years, and unbelievable corruption was the order of the day. In addition to his own Chinese soldiers, he commanded some 100 white Russian mercenary troops, whose main assignment, it seemed, was to ride up and down the rail line towards Tsung Tao in an armoured train, sporadically shooting helter-skelter to terrorize the population. These white Russian mercenary troops had two commanders, General Nikashev and Gen- General Merkulov. General Nikashev was the supreme commander. I knew him well. He had been a Russian cavalry officer and would r- wax nostalgically about the good old days in Tsarist Russia when one knew how to feast, celebrate, and flog the Jews. This he described as really great fun, riding horseback and using long webs to knock Jews off their feet and into the dirt. He lost a leg in the war with Germany, and when the revolution broke out made an adventurous escape, finally landing in Sinanfu with Chang. Merkulov was born to an elite family in Vladivostok. As far as I know, he was a civilian administrative officer serving in the army. His primary job was to pry loose from China the necessary funding for the troops. And this was no easy task because Chang paid up reluctantly and irregularly, if at all. I know that for months on end, the Russians received no pay. If, finally, a blessing arrived and the families who lived in pitiable houses and miserable conditions had money in hand again, they wouldn't first spend it on necessities, but rather on celebratory feasts. I know that very well because we sold Matthew smelling champagne. The hotel had no demand for it. The Chinese never drank it. The consumers were none but these destitute Russians who came to our doors on payday to buy caseloads of this expensive stuff. But Melchior's job was not just to serve the Russian troops wine. It was also to deal arms to Chinese warlords, including one of the most vicious of all Chinese warlords, who Melchior referred to as Chang Cheng Chen. It turns out that this was not actually his name. I did extensive research into this portion of the story and came away with the following results. It becomes complicated because it seems as if Melchior used alternative spellings or just wrong spellings for most of the historical figures he mentions in this time period. Based on the information he gave me, such as this Chung Chan, having been the general of the province of Shangtung, employing white Russian mercenary troops, having worked under Shang Saolin, and having been a bandit, I can assume he meant Zhang Chang, spelled Z-H-A-N-G, Z-O-N-G, C-H-A-N-G. It is important to remember that he didn't have Google, and he probably never saw this man's name spelled out in English lettering. But once I found the correct name of Zhang Zongchang, it turns out he was a pretty evil dude. Zhang was born to a practicing witch and an alcoholic musician. He worked as a pickpocket, bouncer, along with other odd jobs, and worked at some point in Siberia learning Russian. Since he was raised largely in Russia, he spoke Russian fluently. Zhang then became a bandit in the country's countryside, and even served in the Imperial Russian Army during the Russo-Japanese War. He also fought in the Xinghai Revolution before returning to Manchuria and joining the Fengtian clique of Warlord Zhang Zhaolin, Lin, someone who Melkur also mentioned earlier in his tale. After making a good impression on Zhaolin, Lin, he proved capable enough to become a warlord general. He was six foot six, the tallest of the Chinese warlords, and he terrified local civilians, a fact which matches Melchior's descriptions. His troops were famous for splitting melons or bashing skulls with rifle butts. Zhang was notoriously wicked. According to one source, his life was so notorious that it was difficult to separate history from slander. All that was bad in 1920s China was laid at his door. Victims and enemies magnified Zhang into a poster boy for evil and avarice. The rest of what Melchior recounts is also true. He used his linguistic skills, which he picked up in Russia, to command a white troop of Russian mercenaries. These veteran soldiers would come from the Russian Civil War after having lost to the Red Russians and would be essential to his service as a warlord. He used the most of his connections with Russians, even bringing white Russian women into his military as nurses. Zhang worked within criminal gangs and the opioid trade in Shanghai before being driven out by a competitor. He was ultimately made governor of Shandong province in 1925, where his paths were connected with Melchior's work. Melchior recalls that Chang had a preference for Germans. Once he invited the whole German community to his Yaomen government building. It turned into a lavish feast. We entered a large hall where we found seats at an elaborately decorated table. Behind each seat stood a servant, waving a fan throughout the meal to keep the dinners cool, and quality and quantity of food and drink were not lacking. Soon the room was lively. Chang, like an Oriental poet, had a harem. Among his concubines were a few Russian women, all available for the dance floor. A white Russian band played music. Chang squeezed himself into a smoking jacket and danced good-naturedly like a bear, with German women panting and breathing heavily on his shoulder. It was a sight for the gods. To protect himself from any possible attacks, or to attack someone else himself, Zhang naturally needed weapons, and his arm purchases, some of which were with our firm, and came out to a great deal of money. It was exciting and engaging. These lucrative negotiations were not done by Paul M. or me, but rather by the director of our Sang Tao branch, Mr. Pelez, who traveled to Xin Anfu for that purpose. During the height of German colonialism, Piles had been a Marine, and after the war, he stayed on in Tsangtao, working as a salesman out of a German warehouse. Totally unschooled, he proved to be a good salesman. Through clever speculations, he earned extra cash and then married a woman from a German family of means. Somehow, he managed to get a position in our firm, and by the time I had arrived in Sinanfu, he had worked his way up to become director and officer of sales in Tsangtao province. He spoke fluent Chinese and knew just how to get along with the Chinese business community. For any negotiations with Chang, he was the perfect person. Piles and other arms dealers, his competitors, met in the hotel in the evenings. One by one, each of them was summoned by phone to meet with Chang and his yamen. Around midnight or even later, Piles would arrive back at our office. I was woken up to assist him. Often, we were up until daybreak calculating and sending coded telegrams to Hamburg. "'We sold mostly Mauser rifles, pistols, and ammunition. "'I enjoyed this, and we earned quite a bit. "'Once, Piles invited the governor to our Hong. "'The streets around us were barricaded "'just as they were whenever he rode through the city, "'and Cheng arrived in his motor cavalcade. "'We ate and drank very heavily. Cheng was feeling pretty good "'and did not want to leave after the meal, "'as was Chinese custom. "'We were flummoxed. "'What to do now for entertainment?' "'An awkward lull prevailed. "'Even proficient Piles was scratching his head.' And then he came up with a brilliant idea. With Chang, the governor of the province, we played Shinken Kloppen. Maybe you don't know this delightful little game. It's easy to describe. One player bends forward facing the wall while the other stands behind him. Another player gives him a quick slap on the rear end, and he must guess who did it. And if his guess is wrong, he remains in place for another whack. If his guess is correct, then the one who hit him takes his place. We had a whale of a time, and the governor could not get enough of it. That evening was a huge success, which was transparently clear in our next business negotiations. This is a lot to process. I mean, my great-grandfather was having a game of slapping with an infamous Chinese warlord, who is known as essentially a mass murderer. It almost took away my words the first time I read it, but this relationship with Karlowitz and company makes sense based on the descriptions of Zhang's relationships with the Germans. I even found evidence of this varied interaction within one source, although not of the game. In the book, Arming the Chinese, author Anthony B. Chan mentions that although Zhang Zongcheng concluded transitions with the Czechs, he mainly dealt with the Germans, whose influence in Shangdong was still strong even after their defeat in World War I. As the Civil War intensified in warlord China, Western export of war munitions increased. It was clearly an ideal economic situation for Western profit makers. Since the domestic arsenals of the warlords could not keep up with the demand, the reliance on Western traders increased. The Chinese arms market seemed insatiable, and the Western salesmen were ready to satisfy the Chinese warlords' need for Western military technology. Almost immediately after the creation of Anzheng, munition orders from Zhang arrived in the offices of many German farms in Qingdao in Jinan, On the 20th of November 1926, Carlowitz and Company, which specialized in machinery, cartridge clips, steel strips, and cupro-nickel strips for bullets, signed a $3 million contract with Zhang. Although the armaments trade from the west to China was relatively complex because of the travel time, transportation arrangements, and numerous middlemen, the large profits in store and the minimal risks involved acted as incentives for Westerners to secure Chinese arms contracts. Even when the ammunition did not match the accompanying rifles, the Western traders were neither accused by the warlords of unethical dealings, nor were forced to repay it with another cargo of ammunition. In fact, Zhang Zongchang was so pleased by the burnt and Retroist cargo that he gave two evening dances as a show of gratitude for the German business interactions. It was therefore not a question of minor details of unmatched ammunition. Ammunition fitting the rifles purchased from abroad could always be produced by the domestic arsenals. Boats were never a difficulty. On the other hand, rifles and revolvers were always in scarce supply, and the domestic arsenals could not keep up with that demand. The maintenance of a ready source of arms and armaments was crucial to Chinese warlords. This meant sustaining links with Western traders. It was also recorded that Zhang's headquarters were similar to those Melchior mentioned at the German feast. Zhang's headquarters, according to the article A Tale of Two Warlords, ran much like a medieval court, featuring extravagant entertainment, elaborate feasts, what they called heroic quantities of French champagne, and at its center, puffing a trademark Cuban cigar, and apparently, according to Melchior, his token smoking jacket, was Zhang. Zhang was known to be a benefactor to artists, writers, and entertainers. But at this court, you could also find arms dealers, such as Melchior, drug kingpins, as he was heavily involved in the opium trade, diplomats, and a stream of Western journalists. One writer, Ling Yu Tang, described the court as the most colorful, legendary, medieval, and unashamed court in modern China. The same writer was ultimately run out by Zhang in a quite violent and bloody way. However, around the time Melchior headed out of the Shandong province due to a promotion to Carlowitz & Company's Canton branch, Zhang faced his fate. After destroying the local economy through corruption and mismanagement, the entire provincial educational system collapsed and the currency became nearly valueless. He imprisoned anyone who criticized his regimes, used his typical split-melon tactics, and even hung the heads of dissenters from telegraph lines as a reminder to conform to his rule. However, peasants were so angry that they responded, forming a red spear militia. They used red tasseled spears since they didn't have access to any firearms and were angry enough to take on the superiorly armed warlord troops, making life hell for Zhang's units and murdering any stragglers in the army. These superior arms, of course, were provided by Melchior and his colleagues. It's hard to see how obviously Melchior was on the wrong side of history with this one. I consider myself a pacifist, and I certainly don't think that my values align with a brutal Chinese warlord who exploits his people through systems of violence in order to have extravagant feasts. But it's obvious that Melchior didn't really pay attention to that side of history. While Melchior was quick to condemn the actions of the Nazi party, and to say that he wasn't affiliated with the Nazi party in any way, as we will see in later chapters— He wasn't as quick to condemn the actions of Zhang, someone who had personally partnered with him, provided him a lot of financial gain, and ultimately led to his success in Carlo Company. Furthermore, he never addressed that moral gray area of it all, or his own role in the oppression of the people of China. It could have possibly been that he didn't know how brutal and violent the warlord was, but it seems like it was pretty common knowledge at the time, and appeared in just about every historical document that I could find, including his own writing— However, at the time that Melchior was writing this, there wasn't much American attention paid to Chinese warlords or their brutality on civilians. So I could see perhaps why, in retrospect, he'd want to separate himself and distance himself from the Nazi party more aggressively than he would from Chinese warlords, who weren't really facing any condemnation in popular Western media. It's not like he would be shamed later on by his daughter Marianne, my grandmother, for being an accomplice in the brutal actions of Chinese warlords, like he would have been if he had been lying in bed with the Nazis. But it's still highly disappointing to his granddaughter, me, who sits there and sees the fact that he was so deeply engaged in such acts of violence, such horrible acts, and was receiving money for them, and still was okay with the fact that his money was scarred with the blood of innocent civilians. It was red with the blood of dissenters who weren't able to stand up for themselves, and peasants who died from famine because of Zhang's egregious corruption. Melkor's mention of Zhang's employment of white Russian mercenary troops turned up many results upon research, any affiliation and moreover any mention of a general Merkulov, spelled with two F's, couldn't be found. I then tried, however, the name Merkulov with a V, thinking that perhaps Melkor hadn't spelled the name correctly, and found evidence of two different Merkulovs linked to Russia and China at that time. The first possibility is that Merkulov could have been one of the brothers who headed the White Army coup in Vladivostok and led a provisional government until being disposed of in June 1922, where, if this is true, of course, he might have then gone on to lead the White Russian mercenaries who were employed by General Zhang, although there is no mention of that second piece of the puzzle in what evidence I could find, if that is the case. The second and slightly more convincing Merkulov is a Ted Merkulov, Although, what evidence I have of his existence comes from a small local newspaper, The Valley Voice, and is an announcement for his 90th birthday party. This announcement, from October 1997, in the Bay Area of the United States, reads as follows. He was born on July 5, 1907, in Nakata Neck, a beautiful forested salmon and mercer tiger rich valley, just north of the great bastion of Vladivostok. During the profound reign of the last Tsar of all the Russians, Nicholas II, his monarch father managed to build at the eastern border a home and family, became a successful match factory owner, and mounted a counter-revolution. Always at his father's side, Ted sought all. When the Bolsheviks took power, the family fled to North China, where the happy-go-lucky Ted ran guns to outer Mongolia, became a lieutenant colonel of an armored division train in a warlord's army, and went through yet another revolution. In the Far East, he met his three future wives. After a few more global adventures and a few years in San Francisco and a few great-grandchildren, he is now happily ensconced in the Bay Area with his last wife, Mushka. Truly, Ted has seen it all. If you have a moment to send Ted a note to celebrate his milestone, his 90th birthday... This account makes the most sense. As Melker had mentioned that Merkulov came from an elite family in Vladivostok, and Melker was, according to the rest of his account, quite close with Merkulov. It's also true that he helped run an armored train division for a warlord's army, although the specific warlord isn't mentioned, and that he was a lieutenant colonel. So this probably makes the most sense. But if this does, we're going to assume in that case, Ted Merkulov had a less lucrative career than the other general who Melchior describes as General Nikeshev. Although, once again, there is no evidence of a Nikeshev spelled N-I-C-H-A-I-G-E-F-F, there is evidence of a Nikajev spelled N-E-C-H-A-E-V, who I have a lot of incentive to believe is the same person. According to Wikipedia, along with a slew of other resources, Petrovich Nesheyev was an imperial Russian army officer and white movement leader who commanded a large Russian mercenary army in China from 1924 to 1929. Fighting for the Fengtian clique warlords, Zhang Zhaolin and Zhang Zengcheng, Nesheyev had taken part in several of the Chinese warlord wars in that era until his mercenary force was ultimately destroyed in a northern exhibition, whereafter he retired from the military and became a white emigre community leader in Manchuria. He was ultimately captured by the Soviets during the invasion of Manchuria and was executed by Soviet authorities in 1946. Necheev's soldiers were feared for their extreme brutality against civilians and prisoners of war and indiscipline, ultimately earning the name Zhang Zongcheng's crack troops. Once again, it seems as if Melkor was in with all of the wrong people, Pretty much every oppressive, brutalist leader you could possibly be in with at that time and place. However, it's not true that Necheyev never met his fate. He ultimately was executed. In 1928, Melchior transferred to Canton, but before his arrival, he took a vacation in Peking, where he accidentally met the German ambassador von Schon. This humorous incident he describes as follows. A nice little event took place while I was in Peking. As a new arrival there, I was required to leave my business card at the German consulate, and so I dropped it off there at the office of the head of the German diplomatic mission, without giving it another thought. Nor did I think twice about it when I was invited by the German ambassador von Schoen for Christmas Eve. It only started to feel a bit funny and awkward when I, as a young man, was seated in the place of honor next to the hostess, and a circle of elderly elite gentlemen and the host asked me about my father. The man pegged me as the son of a certain Melchior, who was a part of Warburg and company, and as a German expert in the Reparations Commission after World War I, was not at all unknown. The ambassador was diplomatic enough to overlook his mistake, and in the end for me, the evening turned out to be rather nice. Von Schaun, who he mentioned was the German ambassador in Paris at the beginning of World War I, and eventually served as the state secretary of foreign affairs of the German Empire, was a really big deal, and definitely worth independent research if you have the time, although not totally related to our story. So I'll get back on track. Melchior then had to stop in Shanghai, where he recalled the ocean waters turned yellow, brown, then the coastline came into view, and we were at the Yangtze Delta, Our speed reduced, and we headed into the small Wangpu. Its banks were flat and drab, rarely a house, once in a while a single building, then oil tanks, and finally China's largest city came into view. We landed on a long embankment facing Shanghai's most impressive buildings, the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, the Customs House, and many others, which I would get to know better in later years, including the newer buildings, the cafes, hotels, the new Bank of China, and so forth. Sinanfu was a small, dusty rural town where all the foreigners knew each other. Tsingtao was beautiful, but also small. Peking and, above all, Tianjin were larger cities, but Shanghai was a huge metropolis, larger than Hamburg and much louder. An indescribable din prevailed on the quay and on the relatively narrow streets, which were not yet accustomed to heavy automobile and rickshaw traffic. No one picked me up from the pier, and I felt a bit lost. And yet, without any difficulty, nearby on the embankment, I found the hotel which had been recommended to me, the Palace Hotel. Old and historic, yet still magnificent, with grand, spacious rooms and high ceilings, it was unlike anything they build these days, with every square meter must serve a purpose. I've always regretted that none of the hotels today have bathtubs you can really stretch out in. This I could do at the Palace Hotel of Shanghai, and my bathroom alone was as large or even larger than bedrooms in today's hotels. The Palace Hotel of Shanghai still exists today. It's a historical building, which still has its classic red and white brick veneer with two large points at the top and long slender windows. Its insides, although modernized and renovated, are still luxurious and massive. It was there where Melchior met the two partners of the firm, the Royal Salesman and the Iron Gustaf, neither of whom I could find much evidence of online. He claims that the royal salesman was extremely vain, whose greatest strength was to say no. Sometimes, though, this proved not to be a strength at all. I remember the anger he provoked with one of his employees because he had failed to deliver something by the promised deadline. When the employee reminded him of this promise, the royal salesman, with no regrets whatsoever, replied, What do you mean? What do you want? If I want to, I can change my mind. Now, that was not a particularly fine royal response, and so his nickname did not fit him well nor did the one given to the Gustav Roerach. He certainly was not an iron Gustav. Perhaps it had fit him when he was younger, man. When I knew him, there was nothing iron about him. Outside of the office, he was a well-known lover of Goethe's writings, and at parties, he recited long passages from Fruist. In the office, he was slightly foxy, yet thoroughly under the thumb of the royal salesman. I reckon they were about the same age, in their mid-fifties, the royal salesman received me in a cool, impersonal way. Only later was it clear to me that this is how he greeted everyone. Melchior was then introduced to Shanghai's nightlife by a coworker, which according to his memoir, consisted mostly of dance locales, where to the tune of a loud band, you played to like the girl around on the dance floor. You could also invite her to your table, but then you had to pay for each dance, even if you remained at the table with her and did not dance. Once or twice a girl might perform a solo dance or song. Musical quality was limited, but that didn't matter. Most of the time you were high by that time and only wanted a bit of fun. We threw silver dollars onto the dance floor to reward the soloists. These were swept up and handed over to the artist. Usually the foreigners went to Russian dance bars with white Russian dancers. Later, a row of Chinese dance bars opened up with Chinese dancers. They were more civilized, more orderly with less alcohol. And yet, the girls were all the same type. One could do more than just dance with them. Yes, I am horrified to think of my great-grandfather spending time with Chinese German prostitutes. It's almost funny, given the Helmut Haringa story, to think of what his father would have thought about all of this. But let's move on. His day in Canton ended up being short, but less eventful. Of course, I mean measuring up against the rest of his story. And frankly, I believe all of it is worth a read. But from there, he moved on to Hong Kong, where he transferred in the spring of 1928 to be the assistant to one of his colleagues, Schmidt. During his time in Hong Kong, he recalls the vibrant life of the international German community. We had a big garden with flower beds, bananas and pineapple. We had a darling little chow dog. We enjoyed an ideal carefree life. Shortly after my arrival, I bought my first car, a two-seater Fiat, which we drove to the different beaches on the island, or with which we sometimes took trips to Kowloon to find other good coves for swimming or to play tennis at the German club. One of my housemates directed shipping for his firm, Melkers & Co., and had good relations with local shipping agencies. Because of this, we could easily and cheaply rent a motorboat on the weekends, and we often took them out to tour and to stay over a night on different islands. I also became a member of the Hong Kong Royal Yacht Club, where we sailed and rowed. This very exclusive club was under the protectorate of the British King. Before the World War, there were a few German members, and when the war got underway, they found a pretext to toss them out of the club. The German community kept this in their memory. They engaged in lengthy debates when, ten years after the war, the club tried to recruit German members. The old guard Germans, who felt that they had been mistreated, steadfastly refused to join. And yet there were a few reasonable enough to understand that we, the younger generation, would want to join the club. And so I started sculling again. They even had regattas, and the Brits were always fair and good losers if a German boat won. So the real Hong Kong yacht club still exists. I looked it up for fun, and it has existed for quite some time. It was organized in Canton, and organized rowing takes place as far back as 1832, And it appears that the oldest rowing club in the Far East was the Canton Rowing Club. At the time in Hong Kong, the number of German residents was estimated at 156, based on a biannual census that I dug up. So Melchior was probably one of approximately 100 to 200 Germans. However, this was less than half of what it was in 1911, and there had been a substantial dip in German residency during the period of World War I, most likely as a result of Hong Kong being under British control and Germans being forced to repatriate. As he had mentioned earlier, the German community was slowly reestablishing itself, and incoming Germans such as Melchior were a big part of that. What is less covered in history books, however, is the racism, imperialism, and classism which occurred in Hong Kong at the time. Melchior noticed how the city, which was controlled by the British, had a disturbing outspoken consciousness of class distinctions. The Taipans, the business insiders, all lived on the peak. They had their own clubs, which did not admit even their own employees, nor any Brits in low, mid, or low-level positions for other British firms. Melchior wrote that this attitude was often rooted in tradition rather than conceit or arrogance. Every year on the king's birthday, rich Chinese, who brought well to their colonial table, were granted a royal title. But such honors had no effect on their colonial roles. They were not permitted to live in the peak, which was reserved for whites only. This classism and racism seemed to have minimally affected Melchior, who was, after all, a white and fairly wealthy business insider at the time, and probably got to enjoy his own side of the city, which was one of privilege. However, soon once again, he was on the move. He recalls how, because China consolidated its central government in Nanking, its capital city grew to be of greater importance to us. It started with the War Ministry, which purchased weapons for a massive army. The warlords disappeared, and the government in Nanking steadily increased its influence over the entire country. The firm transferred Paul Pales, who had proven himself adept at marketing weapons to Xianfu, to Shanghai, and assigned him to all negotiations with Chinese authorities in Nanking. Paul went at it with great elan, unfortunately with too much elan. Accustomed to the circumstances in Shangtang, he assumed that in Nanking, he would also be dealing with uneducated Chinese who eventually could be won over with bribery. Soon, he started to pay out money to various organizations and buyers before even sealing a contract. Money was spent, but sometimes sales did not materialize. The whole affair got so wild, complicated, and incalculable that it led to horrendous strife between him and the head office in Shanghai, which in turn resulted in his dismissal. Ultimately, the firm decided to open up a new branch in Nanking, and I was destined to be its director. Break of his transfer to Nanking is where we will end our podcast. Before I began my research, I had known little to nothing about the Chinese warlords who Melchior had been dealing with. I hadn't known the atrocities they committed, the gruesome brutality they had inflicted, and the circles of individuals that he had been dealing with during this time. Because of this, I initially had a similar take to the rest of my family. That being that Melchior had a fairly exciting life, and while I didn't entirely agree with his militarism, it certainly wasn't immoral on any level. Just a job, a way to make money and pass the time. After researching, I began to realize the magnitude of Melchior's decisions. The fact that he took part in such an instrumental way, that he was so essential to the destruction of many families, many homes, and so many people in China. The fact that he was selling guns that destroyed innocent civilians and contributed to the conflict which tore apart the Chinese economy and the Chinese people. And the fact that he was doing so without any thought for the repercussions of the people in China that he dealt with. He was only thinking about his business, his transactions, his finances the whole time. Perhaps a little bit of this neglect for people in wartime was a result of his emotional immunity against the casualties of war. Perhaps the fact that he had worked in a first-aid facility and been on the front lines meant that he felt no remorse, no reaction, that he had become numb to the violence. But my job isn't to make excuses for him or to justify his actions. My job is to tell a story, an accurate picture of my family, even with the ugly parts, the parts that maybe I don't want to reconcile myself with, the parts that are a large reason behind why I have the privileges that I do today. It is, after all, the same money that he got from these transactions that was exchanged for gold bars, as we will learn in podcast three, and it ended up contributing to his arrival in America, which leads me to where I am today. Without the violence that he inflicted upon the Chinese people at the time, I wouldn't exist today. Perhaps I wouldn't have had the opportunity to get the education I do, to analyze his diary the way I did, to recognize that what he did was so horribly wrong. It's a lot to contemplate, but more on that in the next podcast. Thank mm-hmm. you.